Temptation of lust is everywhere. I turn on the TV, temptation. I open my laptop, temptation. I go to the gym, temptation. It's inescapable. For a while, I never told anyone about what I looked at and what I did, but it ate me up inside, so I confessed. That seemed to work for a while. I thought I beat it, but the temptation kept returning, and I kept giving in. I know how to get around all the computer accountability software I tried to protect myself with. All I've tried just doesn't work. I'm so angry at myself, so frustrated, so disappointed. But all my praying and repenting and confessing hasn't got me what I've wanted. I'm not free. During a time when my husband and I were in a stressful phase at home, I found myself growing closer to a male friend. This was someone I saw frequently, and it was easy to justify the friendship growing. Gradually, our conversation seemed more personal, sometimes even flirtatious. Getting this kind of attention was, well, it was exciting. Sometimes I would feel a twinge of guilt, but because nothing physical had happened, I tried to tell myself nothing was wrong. I was probably imagining things. The problem was I was imagining things. I found myself thinking about this person more and more, even fantasizing about him or wondering if he found me attractive. Something that was only in my head was getting out of control. From the time I was very little, I'd see magazines at the checkout at the grocery store about celebrities cheating on one another or someone getting pregnant when they didn't intend to. Adultery and pre-marriage sex has just become part of our everyday lives. It's all around us, and it's especially difficult for teenagers like myself. Us teens are sexual by nature. We always have been, and we always will be. As long as I've known girls, I've always tried to impress them, many times failing and making an idiot of myself, but still always trying. So as I got older, the type of things that I and the boys around me would do to get girls' attention would keep moving to the next level as we grew older. As us guys get older, the pressure starts to shift from impressing girls to impressing our guy friends. We're always trying to one-up each other with girls, and eventually that can lead to sex and things that God commands us not to do. Sexual fantasy was part of my life from the time I was in middle school. I struggled at school. I felt anxious, and I felt like my parents were always comparing me to my siblings and to other people's kids. In my fantasies, I could experience relief Distraction from my ordinary life, excitement, pleasure, and the illusion of acceptance. It was an intoxicating combination, and I was hooked on it early. Whenever I didn't have that feeling, that rush, I craved it. I chased it through my teen years right into my adult life. I spent literally decades with lust as my constant consuming companion. But if you had seen my life from the outside, you would have thought I had it all. By my 50s, I was a successful professional, married, with two grown kids and a nice house. I was also still addicted to fantasies. For years, I'd secretly looked at pornography. I'd had an extramarital affair, and I'd kept the truth from everyone who depended on me. No matter how successful my life was, I carried shame, embarrassment, insecurity, and fear. I also rationalized, justified, and compartmentalized my behavior. Part of me knew that something was broken in my life, but another part refused to admit it. The voices of lust are varied, young and old, male and female, married, single. But all of them are strained and brittle. 
The forms of lust are many. Pornography, fantasy, flirtation, sexting, ogling, innuendo. But all of them are ugly and damaging. We haven't even talked yet about what happens when those desires give way to actual behavior. Of all the deadly sins, surely the most shameful is lust. It's the most humiliating. It's the most vulnerable. When it comes to the others, greed, sloth, pride, we can kind of convince ourselves that our struggles are no worse than anybody else's, that our heart's in the right place, that we've got a handle on these things. But lust brings us to our knees in defeat, fills us with remorse. We're ashamed at the thoughts that come into our mind. We're afraid of what could happen if we were ever to lose control of this thing. And of all the deadly sins, surely lust is the most difficult to talk about, the most personal, the most revealing. So far in this series, I have been rather forthcoming in my own issues with the sins we've talked about, pride and anger. I'll do a little less of that this morning. Now, I would want you to know that by God's grace, I don't think there's anything I would tell you that you would find especially shocking or disturbing. Again, by God's grace, I've uh, been able to stay out of trouble in this particular area of life, but I'd be kidding you and me if I didn't uh, admit that it's skulking around in my soul along with the other six of these sins. It's an old familiar story, a true story, uh, told about a an aged seminary professor who was counseling with a young seminary student. Now, this professor was especially highly regarded for his godly character, for his years in ministry, for his practical pastoral wisdom. And this young man, he was seminary student, was struggling in the area of sexual temptation. In frustration, he said to his mentor, he said, Dr. So-and-so, just... At what age will lust no longer be an issue for me? And the elderly professor, with a bit of a twinkle in his eye, said, I can't say exactly, son, but it's somewhere beyond 82. <laughs> now, all this to say that no one is immune to sexual temptation by virtue of their age or their gender or their profession. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time documenting the problem this morning. We're all, we are familiar with the frightening statistics. We have heard the horror stories. We know how pervasive and pernicious this problem is. We've all felt the shame associated with it at one time or another. Now, we'll need to spend a few moments defining lust and uh, why it's so deadly. But I want to make sure we get to the solution side of this issue that we set our vision on the lively virtue God calls us to and that we talk about a healthy habit that gets us there. Now, two weeks ago, we spoke about pride and we identified humility as the lively virtue that corresponds to it and we proposed worship as a way of getting from pride to humility. Worship reminds us who we are before God and in Christ. Last week, we spoke about anger. The corresponding virtue is righteousness. And we said that prayer helps us get there. Honest, heartfelt, 
passionate, even angry prayer as we bring our concerns to God and He tells us what to do with them. Well, you can perhaps guess what today's lively virtue might be that goes with lust, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be surprised by the healthy habit we talk about. So, hang with me. Uh, let's begin by understanding what lust is and why it's so deadly. Well, the first thing we'd want to say is that sex is good. The human body is beautiful. Intimacy is a treasure. Pleasure is a gift from our Creator. It was God who made us this way. God who made us male and female. God who gave us body parts that can produce life and give pleasure. God who placed within us this mysterious desire that we call libido. And no one really knows what libido is, but you know it when you feel it. <laughs> and you miss it when you don't. It makes us feel alive. And so we're glad for that drive. We're thankful for our sexuality, for, for the thrill of a kiss, for the tenderness of a touch, for that magical moment when eyes meet across the room and something stirs on the inside. All these things are good. So why is lust a problem? Well, lust is a problem because it perverts all these things. To pervert is to twist, to contort. And that's what lust does to these good gifts. It takes something beautiful and satisfying and life-giving and twists it into something disfigured and disappointing and deadening. So I'm going to define lust as excessive and demeaning sexual desire. The sexual desire is fine. It's the excessive and the demeaning dimensions that make it so deadly. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. This verse is telling us that something has gone wrong with human desire. This life-giving drive that God placed within every one of us. Lust is simply desire run amok, out of control. It's a car crashing through the guardrail. It's, it's a river overflowing its banks, wreaking havoc and destruction instead of life and vitality. So lust is excessive desire, but it is also demeaning desire. And I mean that literally. Lust strips sexuality of its power and beauty and meaning. Now, I've never been to a strip club, and by God's grace, I hope never to. But they are aptly named because what lust does is to strip sexuality of all of its goodness and beauty. It strips human beings of their dignity. It's the language of separation, which is the language Paul uses here. They are separated from the life of God. Lust separates us. Lust separates sex from relationship. It strips sex from relationship. See, sexuality is primarily about relationship. God, God 
gave us this desire, this, this drive to, to propel us toward deep, lasting, bonding commitment with another person. The very language that we use, intercourse, demands another party. Now, it was pure genius on God's part to design us this way, to give us this appetite for relationship, for commitment and connection and bonding with another human being. Now, lust, so it was meant to drive us toward relationship. Lust does the very opposite. Lust isolates us. Lust violates boundaries. Lust tears relationships apart. That's what Jesus is getting at in those famous words from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying that the person you're looking at and longing for, they don't belong to you. You have no relationship with them. You just want to use them for your own satisfaction. And by the way, while you're doing that, you are violating every other relationship that you and they are already involved with. That's why he says that if, if, if your eye does that, tear it out and throw it away. It's deadly. No wonder it leaves us feeling more lonely and isolated than ever. And secondly, lust separates giving from getting. It strips giving from getting. Sexuality is, is about giving as well as receiving. We give our bodies, we give ourselves to another person for their pleasure, for their satisfaction. We make ourselves vulnerable. We take a risk. That's why sex is designed for the safety and security of marriage and the unconditional love that goes with that. Listen again to Paul. This time he's writing to the Corinthians. The husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. Now, when I hear the word marital duty, I think of things like taking out the garbage. Apparently, some duties are more fun to fulfill than others. <laughs> Sexuality is to be an expression of mutual love and delight, of serving and satisfying, of giving and receiving. Lust, lust ignores all of that. There's, there's no giving in lust. There's no risk in lust. There's no vulnerability in lust. No wonder it leaves us feeling so, so, so empty so selfish. And then lust separates or strips body from soul. Human beings are whole persons, body and soul, material and spiritual. To, to be a human being is to be both material and spiritual. Take the spiritual side away and, and, and we're just animals. And listen to music, watch TV, go to the movies and you'll discover sexuality increasingly in our society is portrayed as just animal behavior. Just, just do it, because that's what we do. To be human is to be body and soul. Listen again to Paul's word to the Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now notice, he doesn't say your soul is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Seriously? This bag of brittle bones and sagging flesh is where God chooses to live to make himself visible and accessible to the world? Yes. And so what we do with our bodies matters. It not only affects our soul, it affects the soul of those around us. When we degrade our bodies or someone else's, we are degrading the very life of God within us. It's no wonder it leaves us feeling so ashamed, so unholy. Remember what we said about libido, the sex drive. It makes us feel alive. It makes us feel human. It makes us feel male and female. But look what lust does. It kills. It separates us from the source of life and leaves us feeling empty, isolated, and far from the God who made us. No wonder it's a deadly sin. Now, as our teaching team was working on this series and this message in particular, we felt it would be really important to hear a woman's perspective on this particular issue. We often don't get to hear that perspective. So uh, our middle school director here in Lexington, Jocelyn, has agreed to come and share a few moments on this particular issue from a, a woman's perspective. So can we welcome Jocelyn as she comes to share? I know what you're thinking. Uh, Jocelyn, why did they ask you to talk about lust? <laughs> but the reality is that lust is a sin that everyone has to wrestle with. And at the core of lust is a tendency to view people as who we want them to be instead of who they truly are. But it affects women in a distinct way because not only do women experience lust towards others, so often we are the object of other people's lust. Women's bodies are avail available for comment and critique. Our clothing choices are open to discussion in a way that men's really aren't. Women are often made responsible for the lust of others based on what we wear or how we carry ourselves. But I'm going to dispel a myth. It is not flattering when someone turns to watch as you walk by. It's violating. It feels like being exposed. It's like being put on display without your permission. It reduces a person to merely a body without acknowledging their being, their likes, their story, their brain, their values, and their flaws. Lust means that the aspects or parts that you like about him or about her are yours for the taking to satisfy what you think you want or need. Sometimes it feels easy to say, oh, it's just a picture or an image or a stranger, but that picture is a person. You can think, I'm not really hurting anyone if they're the ones who put themselves out there. But the reality is that 
we all have to decide first that we will choose to honor each other. And that might mean that sometimes we have to honor the stranger. Sometimes we have to honor people who don't have honor for themselves. I work with middle school kids and I see that the mixed messages that they receive start very early. Girls are told throughout their lives, your value is in your body. Your worth is in your beauty. But at church, you're taught to cover your body because it is sexual and it can cause harm to others. Boys are told what they're supposed to like by the glorification of a certain standard of beauty. Sex is everywhere and women are presented as sexual everywhere you look. It is a very weird experience to sit and watch TV with, or a movie with your friend, boyfriend, husband, father, or brother, and wonder, what are they thinking right now? You kind of question whether you even measure up as a woman because I don't look like that. My friend told me that she experiences lust the most when she's shopping. Maybe if I wore that, then I'd be beautiful. When your value comes from what someone thinks when they look at you, the temptation becomes to get them to look. And that's the lie that the sin of lust tells us, that my beauty and value are determined by what someone sees when they look at me. But the truth is that my body was handmade by the God who formed the universe. And to only see my body while missing my spirit is to miss something truly holy. So church, let's turn away from lust and instead embrace honor. Women, let's honor ourselves and tell the girls in our lives that we love our bodies and we think we're beautiful. Men, would you honor the women in your lives by telling them that you think they're smart, that they're funny, that you admire their accomplishments and you respect their dreams? Teach the young men who look up to you what it means to honor others in mind, body, and spirit. Let's commit to really looking each other in the eye, to seeing each other and experiencing each other as whole people made in the image of God. Let's see each other with the eyes of Jesus as people made to reflect the love and beauty of God to each other. Thank you, Jocelyn. Feels like our middle schoolers are getting some good care and good teaching, so we're glad for that. Amen. By the way, the student ministries in this particular month are doing a whole series on, uh, on purity issues, and this Wednesday evening, there's a parents' seminar right here in the Lexington campus, so parents of teenagers, you're welcome to come out Wednesday night and talk some more about this topic. Well, all this to say that lust is dehumanizing. It makes us less than God intended us to be. It takes something that was meant to bring beauty and fulfillment and intimacy and satisfaction and leave us instead feeling isolated, empty, ashamed, and far from God. We were made for better than that. 
We long for more than that. What we were made for, what we long for is love. Now, you probably guessed that love would be the corresponding virtue to lust. But we had a few that we could have worked with. We thought for a while about purity or chastity as the corresponding virtue. And certainly, they're a part of this story. But they seem just a little too narrow to me, a little too focused on restraint while missing the expression aspect to our sexuality. And so I chose love because it reminds us that sex is ultimately about relationship. Now again, God in his wisdom made it pleasurable so that it drives us toward relationship and commitment and intimacy. But at the heart of it, it's to, to drive us to relationship with other human beings. The sexual act is perhaps the most dramatic and vivid display of relationship, of intimacy, of oneness. But there are many, many ways to experience relationship and connections in this world. You don't have to be sexually active to be sexually alive. I'll say that again. You don't have to be sexually active to be sexually alive. Anytime you express or affirm your maleness or femaleness, by the way you dress, by the way you see the world, by the way you relate to another person, you are affirming and celebrating your sexuality before God and before others. And sexual intimacy is, is, is safe and secure in a marriage commitment, but there are other ways to enjoy intimate relationships with the same and opposite sex in our lives, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So, the corresponding virtue to lust is love. It's what we were made for, and lust is devoid of all of that. Well, it all sounds very lofty and wonderful, Pastor. We'd all like to love better, but how in the world do you get there? What's the remedy for lust beyond a filter on my computer and a cold shower? I don't want to minimize some of these practical safeguards. We need those. But we've all experienced too much defeat in this area to rely on those alone. We know we need something stronger. I told you that our answer would surprise you. The remedy, the healthy habit that gets you from lust to love is fasting and feasting. No, I didn't get my sermon notes mixed up with another week. And I know that Pastor Tim spoke on gluttony last Sunday night, and he talked about fasting and feasting. But it turns out that lust and gluttony are cousins. They both have to do with appetites, God-given appetites, that have gotten out of control. In Scripture, the Apostle Paul makes that link again as he's writing to the Corinthians. You get the sense the Corinthians had some issues with the sexuality. But from, from chapter 6, Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Then he quotes the philosophers of the day. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both, he says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so he's affirming that soul-body connection we talked about earlier, that we are whole persons. And so he's telling us that gaining control over our bodies is essential to spiritual as well as physical health. So what does fasting and feasting have to do with lust? 
Let's talk about fasting first. Fasting is simply saying no to something good so that I can say yes to something better. Saying no to something good so I can say yes to something better. When we fast, we're reminding ourselves that we cannot live on bread alone, that we need God and His Word to sustain us. And so when we skip a meal for spiritual reasons, we are saying, Lord, I want you more than lunch. And if you've ever done that for a meal or two or three, you know that communion with God is way more satisfying than a sandwich. When we fast from the radio for the 40 days of Lent, we are saying, Lord, listening to you is more important to me than listening to the top 40. And if you've ever done that, you know that God's voice is way more beautiful than anything you're going to hear on the radio. So fasting exercises the no muscle, teaching, training us to say no to a good thing so that we can say yes to a better thing. If, because if you can say no to that donut sitting on the counter, you can probably say no to that website when it pops up on your computer. If you can say no to a second helping of pasta, then you can say no to a second look at that stranger who just walked by. See, if your only strategy to defeating lust is to grit your teeth and say no for as long as you can, you're going to wear out. A temptation will come that's overpowering. The, 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 the best way to say no to a temptation is to have a stronger yes. A stronger yes. This has been such an important principle for me over all my years of following Christ. When I am tempted in this area or any other area, I, I remind myself in that moment as quickly as I can that I have a wife I love and cherish more than anything in this world, that I have children and grandchildren who look up to me and are counting on me to show them the way. I have a congregation of people counting on me to be right with God when I step into this pulpit. And those people, those relationships are so much more valuable to me than a few moments of some sex sexual or any sinful indulgence, I find the strength to say no to that lesser thing so that I can say yes to the people that God has given me in my life. And I found I'm better able to do that when I have practiced saying no by fasting from time to time along the way. Dallas Willard used to say that we should say no to one thing every day just to keep in shape. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now notice here, Paul has zero tolerance for sexual sin. And that's the spirit we need to bring. Like a recovering alcoholic who can't take one drink, we can't take one peak, just zero tolerance. And so we, we need to use that no muscle and strengthen that no muscle. But notice what Paul's final word of instruction is. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And that points us to the second healthy habit, which is feasting. 
What we mean by feasting is feasting on the good things of God. See, lust is fundamentally about desire, the God-given desire for beauty, for pleasure, for intimacy. But when our souls are starved for those things, we will reach for any quick fix to satisfy those longings. Just a quick click to a website, a, a flirtatious exchange on Facebook. When we do that, it's like wolfing down a donut when what we really need is a meal. Now, if you're wondering what gives with the donuts, <laughs> it's just a simple reminder that even skinny guys can have a problem with gluttony, okay? <laughs> Full disclosure here. So one of the ways to deal with lust is to fill our souls with the good things of God. So feast on beauty. We take delight in the human body because it's beautiful. It's pleasing to the eye. It stirs our imagination. The human body's beautiful. But, but so is a sunset. So is a Rembrandt. So is a chamber orchestra or a jazz ensemble. So is a well-tailored suit. So is a well-appointed room. So is a crocus pushing its way up through the soil. Teach yourself to feast on the good things of God. We were made for that. Take a walk. Go to a museum. Stroll through our art gallery. It's loaded with beauty. Watch a good film. Buy yourself. Splash on some cologne. Our senses are we're made to be stimulated by beautiful sights and sounds and smell. And, and, and our God-made world is full of those things. Enjoy them. Feast yourself on beauty. Feast on fun. Feast on fun. Pleasure is one of God's good gifts. We were made to smile, to laugh, to celebrate, to laugh out loud, to have a reckless sense of abandon. And, and that's why we enjoy sex. It's fun. It's exciting. It's, it's unpredictable. But so are lots of other things. So find things that make you laugh, that bring a smile to your face, that make your heart pound, that give you a sense of reckless abandon or commitment. I'm convinced one of the reasons some men get in trouble in this area is because there's no adventure in their lives. There's nothing to get excited about. So find something that gets your heart pounding. Hit the slopes, hit a golf ball, build a deck, buy a Harley, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Run a 5K, take a road trip, roto till the backyard, I don't care, do whatever it is that gets your blood going, okay? So feast on beauty, feast on fun, and finally, feast on relationships. Fill your life with people. Friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Join a small group of mentors, mentees. Just fill your life with relationships. There are all kinds of ways to experience depth of relationship, intimate relationships, even if you're not in a marriage relationship. If you're a single person, get out of the house, call somebody, find some friends, go out to dinner, go on a date, join a club, join a team, join a cause, join a mission. Invest deeply in some relationships with people who know you and love you just as you are. Married couples, include single people in your social network. Let them share in and enrich your family life together. 
Fasting and feasting. These are the healthy habits that give way to love. Now, we haven't talked much, I know, about the traditional strategies for dealing with lust. Things like getting a filter on your internet, not staying up alone late at night, giving your spouse full access to your email and your social networks, having an accountability group. All those things are good and helpful. But the surest way to say no to sexual temptation is to be so busy saying yes to the good things of God that you have no time, energy, or interest in the cheap thrills or tawdry trinkets that lust might have to offer. Feast on the good things of God. So a couple closing thoughts. First, a word to parents. Talk to your kids about these things. Don't wait for them to bring them up because they won't. How early should you bring them up? Early enough so they hear it from you first. And that's getting earlier and earlier. And keep talking about it as they make their way through middle school and high school. Even though they moan and groan and roll their eyes and look for the nearest exit, you keep talking. I used to take my boys out for a burger, trap them in a booth, bribe them with a sundae, whatever I had to do to get them to talk. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them where their pressure points are. What's going on at school? Tell them you're praying for them. Tell them that you're tempted sometimes too. And then finally, a word to those who may already be in trouble in this area. Maybe you failed miserably. Or you feel like you're going under for the last time and there, there's no way you're ever going to break free. Let me assure you there is hope in Christ. Christ is able to forgive you for the 10th, 100th, 10,000th time. Christ is able to heal you of whatever wounds are there inside of you and even wounds you may have inflicted on others. He is able to heal. And God is able to help, to grant you the spiritual strength to say no and to fill your life with good things. And if you do find yourself struggling in a particular way with this or any of the sins we're talking about in this series, you should know there's a community of people just like you who gather here in Lexington every Monday night for Celebrate Recovery. And you know what they do? They feast. They feast on a meal. They feast on conversation. They feast on worship and teaching. And then they break up into groups where they learn to practice saying no to food, to sexual addictions, to anger and other emotional issues, to all the hurts and habits and hang-ups of life. Come and join them any Monday night. I began this message with the voices of lust, young, old, married, single, male, female. There are real people behind each of those stories that we shared. The fourth voice was the voice of a 50-something married man who was literally brought to his knees by shame and defeat in the area of sexuality. Let me finish this morning by reading the rest of his story. The crisis came when some of my double life came to light. And for some reason, this time, I chose to reveal the whole story rather than cover up. Hearing myself talk about the years of pornography, infidelity, deception, and selfishness, I was appalled at the person I had become. I had hit bottom. My marriage was at risk and I resigned from my job. But to my amazement, the people I shared with were not condemning. Rather, they lifted me up to God. 
I was faced with the choice then between the wages of sin or a new path, one that leads to life. I realized God is real and he is active within the souls of those who believe. From that point, I started attending church, celebrate recovery, studying the Bible, and seeing a Christian counselor. I'm very grateful to Grace Chapel and Celebrate Recovery, as most of us who have struggled with lust feel our kind of brokenness is ickier than the others. But I have only experienced acceptance, support, encouragement, and godly people in this place. About one year into my recovery, my wife and I renewed our vows in a church with God at the center. Real miracles are possible. Shortly thereafter, I was baptized. I now support and sponsor the recoveries of several of my brothers, and I am actively seeking Jesus' character to be more formed within me. I am celebrating recovery over sexual brokenness. May you too find freedom from lust, fullness of love, by fasting from lesser things and feasting on the good gifts of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity to talk so honestly about a challenging dimension of life. We pray for those who need healing today that they might find it in you. Pray for those who need help today that they would find it in you and your people. For those who need hope, may they set their eyes on you. Fill our lives with good things, Lord, that we may share them with others in Jesus' name. Amen.